I started crying. And then this whole time I'm trying to wriggle my toes, I'm trying to move them. And I can't, I can't feel them moving. I can't feel anything below my waist. And then I was like, I live on the second story of a townhouse down in Townsville and it has stairs. How am I going to be able to get to the second story? How am I going to get home? Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of the mouth. We're in a tight country. We're out there. At the end of the day, everyone is their job. wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed, though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He held me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Welcome to our final conversation for Season 1 of Life on the Line. For this episode, I spoke with a veteran of Afghanistan, Chris May. Chris is only a couple of years older than me, so having survived what he has in only his 20s really had an impact on me. I'm sure his story will be meaningful to you as well. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Chris. Thanks for having me. Tell me about your childhood. I grew up in Victoria in Melbourne southeast. I went to school here in Berwick and uh, grew up, went to high school here in Berwick and played for the Berwick Footy Club and got to about year 10 and decided uh, I was going to go off and join the army and waited until I was old enough and that's when I signed up and uh, went up to uh, Kapuka and started my basic training. My entire childhood was was spent here in uh, in Berwick, obviously with my family, mum and dad and three older brothers, so I'm the youngest of four boys. So it was pretty pretty manly childhood growing up sort of thing. We Got up to a lot of mischief around Berwick in the local areas. And we did a lot of four-wheel driving and camping as well. Mum and dad were very avid four-wheel drivers and campers. And we spent a lot of time up in the high country uh, and travelling around Australia, seeing our own backyard and what it's, what it's like around Australia. Crossed the Simpson Desert twice and, you know, went to Cape York twice before I finished primary school. So I was pretty fortunate in the aspects I got to travel a lot as a, as a young kid as well. Were you sporty as well? I was pretty sporty. I was uh, very much into my AFL. I played, um, played football for Berwick Football Club and... Played all the way through until I did an injury on my knee. And uh, when I did the injury on my knee, I got told I couldn't play for a year. So I took up lawn bowls because it was something different and uh, pretty competitive. And I made it to the state under 21 side, which um, chin lawn bowls isn't exactly hard, but uh, it was a good, good challenge and good fun. Did you pick up the footy again once you could? Uh, when I could, yeah. When I, got, when I was in the army, I played footy again, mostly dabbled in rugby union um, and then to rugby league. And in my later years in the army, when we moved back down south, I actually uh, picked up the Aussie Rules football again and started playing for, um, for ADFA when I was uh, posted there. Well, they would have loved that because it's all about bringing in team sports and forming those bonds of mateship, which you don't quite realise what they're doing at the time, but they're preparing you. Oh, yeah. Team sports are, are, are imperative in growing up. It really builds that comradeship and the ability to um, work for a common, go- a common goal. And um, being Australian, it's kind of in our nature, but um, competitive sports are the best lessons you can learn in life. You learn about winning and victory and being gracious in defeat, but you also learn about losing and, and how you can um, better yourself afterwards. So what first drew you to the army? In all honesty, I kind of uh, was in high school and obviously my first year of high school was um, just after September 11. And that was the day the world changed. Everyone remembers the sort of thing. And, you know, I can remember waking up on September 11 here in Australia, going to go watch Cheese TV and, and uh, watch some cartoons, but they weren't on because it was just the constant footage of the twin towers being attacked and um 
later on, I started to get really drawn to the military side. I wanted to be a, um, a pilot at a young age, but I didn't have the grades at school. So I started to lean towards the army a bit more and um, I found the army cadets and I became an army cadet down in Dandenong and found it just absolutely drawn to it, really. I, cu- I couldn't get enough of it sort of thing. And then when I, um, when I saw an APC come into the cadet unit one day, I said, I want to drive one of those things. And, you know, two years later, I was in the army driving ASLAVs. So it was a really, really kind of um, long drawn out process, but it, it brought me to some pretty cool experiences in my time. So your military training, when you start that, you're pretty young. I was 17, so I actually got mum and dad to sign the dotted line for me and, and allow me to go to Kapuka. So I was uh, 17, so I signed the dotted line at 16 and nine months and was at basic training at 17. How'd you find basic? Interesting. It was interesting. As a 17-year-old, you're a bit naive to a lot of the things and discipline in life and whatnot. But I was fortunate in the room that I was in. I actually shared um, with an, a 22-year-old. He was a nice guy. But I also shared it with a guy who was in the army in 1989 when I was born. And he was coming back to the army. John, he, he kind of taught me some pretty good lessons in the room. He pretty much said, you know, keep your head you know, in the game. Keep your nose out of trouble and you'll be fine. And uh, and we did. And we remain, remain good mates today. So it's... um. Basic training was interesting for a 17-year-old, but it wasn't impossible. When and where was your first deployment? So it was 2009. I was deployed as part of the Mentoring and Reconstruction Task Force to Afghanistan as part of Operation Slipper uh, with the 1st Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment. My job was I was essentially a driver of a protective mobility vehicle, so the PMV. I was a driver and a rear call sign, as, and I was 19 years old. So I'd been training for two years and got the opportunity and jumped at it and, um, you know, headed across the other side of the world to go to war, essentially. You've been quite young when you'd seen that incredible footage of 9-11 occurring and now you're over in the Middle East in a war zone. How did that situation impact on you? Did you feel the weight of what you were doing or was it all an adventure? Um, It started off as an adventure. It started as an adventure and the weight hits you over time. I mean, I remember the very first day getting into Afghanistan and seeing the country and the scenery inspiring it was just an amazing place and having done a bit of history and being a bit of an avid history follower i remember you know hearing the stories about the english going through there in the early days alexander the great being through there as well as genghis khan and none of them have ever conquered the country and you know we went there and it's such a place that's just immersed in history and it didn't hit me it was an adventure it was exciting it was something new something fun and then the first patrol was the day you're all geared up you're in the vehicle and you roll outside of the barbed wire fences and your heart just starts to skip a second beat and then it starts to go a little bit faster and the weight of what you're actually doing there starts to occur. So you start to, you know, be really concerned about are we going to get shot at? Are we going to hit an IED? All the training kicks in and then over time you become accustomed to that and used to it and um, the weight kind of comes down on you over time and that's when the, the reality hits you of what's happening and it's usually after the first contact or the first patrol or something that bad happens where you kind of really take a step back and go, Ah, this is war. Can you tell me more about that first patrol? Well, my first patrol was pretty benign. Um, Not much happened. Uh, We went out and we were out for about four days. I remember driving, I remember the experience of driving out of the gates, just seeing the barbed wire of the inner gate where the um, Czechoslovakian security guards were, their military, and they were the security guards of the base. And they kind of like waved us out as friendly faces. And then we went outside the second gate, which was the Afghan National Army boundary. And um, they kind of just opened the gate for us and smiled as we went out. And then that's it, we were, were out. And then we drove down to the Tarankat roundabout and then turned right down towards Irish Crossing. And you see all the civvies coming out, all the civilians coming out, the young kids, they're throwing rocks or giving the hand signals or trying to get the free colouring books and whatnot. 
So the first patrol was really benign in that fact, but you start to see how the people over there lived. And that's that I remember that vividly and the most. You know, the patrols, you park up in somewhere on top of a hill in the sun, and then the section commander comes around and tells you you're on picket. You stand up in a turret in the heat, get hot, sweat it out, drink lots of bottled water, um, lots of bottled water, and stay hydrated. That was pretty much all it was, really, for the first few patrols. And, and then as time progresses, that's when they start to get more involved and active, and then days happen where the first car hits an IED strike or you hear that over the radio, and that's where you start to really focus. What was the population like towards you? They're pretty cool. They're, they're, they're pretty friendly. I mean, there are lovely people in, in Afghanistan. I suppose it's like the small percentage of them that are the bad eggs that want to do you harm. But for the most part, I never had a bad interaction with them at all. I mean, I, I remember on my second deployment, uh, sitting down with a young boy who spoke English. And the reason that I sat down with him was because he walked up to me and asked me in English. He said, hey, mister, where are you from? And I actually drew on the ground with, a, with my finger in the dirt a map of the world and where we were and where, where where I was from. And he said, how many miles is that? How many days will it take you to drive there? And um, it was pretty funny. And I actually had a bit of a chat with him and asked him where he learned English. And he learned in English in Pakistan because his dad was a doctor. They give you food if you ask for food. They give you tea if you ask for tea. But for the most part, they're a pretty, pretty open people and they don't really mind. You know, their farm is just trying to survive their day-to-day lives. So it's... um. It's, it's, a, it's a cool place. The people are cool. I never had a problem with them at all. What was your first experience with an IED? Was it over the radio or someone else in your patrol? Yeah, so my first experience with an IED was actually hearing about it on the radio. Uh, it was my first trip in 2009 and we heard it as we were coming back into Tarrant We heard that a vehicle had been struck by an IED out on Route Whale. It was only a small IED, but they were sending out the recovery team to pick the vehicle up and bring it back. And by the time we'd put our vehicles back in the hangar and we'd cleaned the weapons and we'd restowed the vehicle ready to go for the next day, it was arriving. It was mid-afternoon and the, the Mack truck rolls in with its trailer and on the back of the trailer there's a Bushmaster with its front two wheels missing and a lot of damage done to the you know the bins on the outside. And the crew that were in the vehicle were sitting in the Mack truck like waving and cheering like, hey, how you going? <laughs> um, and when they rocked up, you know, the crane picked the vehicle up, put it down on the ground, and we had a, a part of the compound which we nicknamed the graveyard, which had about, I think at its fullest, it had about 12 vehicles sitting there with tarps covering them up that had all been struck by IEDs. And it became a bit depressing seeing that towards the end, but and filling it up, that became pretty depressing as well. But, you know, that was my first experience of seeing a vehicle that had been struck by an IED and the reality of the, the threat of IEDs. Can you describe for me what your day-to-day is? I understand the patrols, but what other work are you doing over there? For us, what our job in a day-to-day context really was, um, was essentially providing protection to certain elements that were out in the field. Now, that could be vary from an infantry patrol that were conducting a patrol through the green zone. So they would move through and then we would sit on the hills and we would provide what's called overwatch just to make sure that any contact that does occur, they've essentially got support on the high ground, support for medevacs and casavacs and calling in uh, air and medical assets or air assets for that case. So we're there to provide that buffer zone and kind of supremacy over the enemy to make sure that they don't really do any harm to us. You know, we could do other jobs, including going out with the um, reconstruction teams that go out and conduct the civil projects, build the boys' school, the mayor's compound, or they'd go down to bridges and, and local areas that improve local facilities around the area. One of the big jobs we had to do was provide security for the construction of a new patrol base. So we actually went out with the vehicles and provided hard shoulders for the construction guys to build an Afghan National Army patrol base. So they had somewhere to 
be safe and protected whilst they are out in their valleys patrolling. So it varied a lot from task to task, even on the trip to trip. So my first trip, it was one role. And my second trip, I was living on a, in a different conditions, doing a different job. But those were the kind of the big four. And you have a mandate to be winning Hearts and Minds. Yeah, 100%. The Hearts and Minds mission is an important one. You've got to make sure the local population know you're there not to hurt them. You're there to assist them and ensure that their way of life is improved. There's a lot of conjecture about that and how it all kind of comes out. You obviously see so many people protesting certain aspects of it, but until you've really been there and seen what it's like for the people, it's really, you can't really weigh it up. So, but for the most of the time, you are improving their quality of life. They do, you see the improvements in places like Tarankout. You know, I heard from good mates of mine that were there in Afghanistan in the early days, and they said that there would be no girls going to school. You wouldn't see women out in the streets at all. And when I was there on both of my trips, I saw the change between 2009 and 2011 that women were actually allowed out, some wearing hijabs, some wearing burqas, but they were out and about. So you did see the female side of the population, which was you know, very progressive as well as the boys' school, we had the Tarrant Boys' School, which saw children getting education, the apprenticeship school that the Australian Army was running with and in conjunction with ISAF to give the locals trades such as carpentry and plumbing and electrician skills. And that's the sort of stuff that we were doing that's not really spoken about on the news and media. But that's a big part of the Hearts and Minds missions to improve the country. And one day you're doing a colouring-in book with a local boy. Yeah, that's correct. That was on my first uh, trip overseas. We were up on a hill and we had some ISAF colouring in books and the little dynamo wind-up radios to hand out to locals. And uh, two young boys approached our position and we went out there and we greeted them. We gave them the colouring books and sat down. I sat down with one of the boys and we were colouring in, taking turns of drawing pictures and colouring in. He wasn't the greatest at it, but um, he gave it his best. And um, we just kept colouring in and having a bit of a laugh. And the language barrier existed and it provided... You know, hard for me to try and educate him and help him out, but he got the idea in just after a while. And then um, kind of the sun was going down and patrol was starting to return. And as the patrol returned, pretty much he got up and we said, all right, mate, see you later and watched where he headed off into, down back into the green zone, home. And um, that was, yeah, the last we saw of him until the next day when his father brought him back up with his throat being cut um, because the Taliban had been watching me colour him with this young boy. So during the night he was actually killed. So... For a 19-year-old, that's a pretty hard hard thing to see and, and, and kind of weigh up what had actually happened. How did you react at the time? I didn't. As a 19-year-old, my really my first experience with something so negative, I didn't even pay attention to it. I kind of zoned out. I found my mate had a bigger problem with it because he actually had um, two young daughters and he saw the child aspect of it and that weighed pretty heavily on him. How was the father? Was he blaming you? Yeah, at first he was. At first he blamed us for the death of the child, but after kind of explaining, we kind of said it wasn't us through the interpreter, we said it wasn't us, it was the Taliban. I think he understood, but in, in this, that specific culture, death comes at the time which, which is most suited, and that's their time. They're very um, set in that, in that way. So he wasn't, he was mourning, but he wasn't upset, and it wasn't, he was sort of, sort of a bit of um, money, but we didn't give it to him. We kind of explained the situation and that was pretty much the end of it. And it was over in the space of an hour, you know, it was done and dusted. You probably weren't thinking this way at the time, but then looking back now, does that either reinforce your drive to say, yes, we are here, we have to be here making a difference, fighting against these guys, doing these atrocities, or does that make you question your presence there? Both. It really does in both sides of it. You've got to look at it objectively and you've got to take your emotions out of it and what you've learned and what you've seen. And if we weren't there... Well, the Taliban wouldn't have seen anyone colouring in with anybody. 
the child might be alive. If we were there and we were doing our job better, maybe, maybe we would have stopped the Taliban from doing that. But you know, everyone's got twenty twenty vision in hindsight, and it makes it almost impossible to say that um, that 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 child would still be alive if there were other circumstances, sort of thing. But I can definitely see both sides of the story. You know, both sides. You know, if you weren't there, they, well, he'd still be alive. Well, if you'd done our job better, he'd still be alive. But you can't really focus on either of those aspects and take them to heart. Are there any other highlights or striking memories from your first tour? One that really sticks with me was my first ramp ceremony of an Australian soldier. It was when Private Ben Renato was killed. And I was in Tarrant and we had the funeral for Ben and then the ramp ceremony where they drive the vehicle with the coffin draped with the Australian flag down to the flight line and you place the um, the coffin onto the, the aircraft, the Air Force C-130, and it takes off and everyone stands there and salutes as this body of a, an Australian soldier returns back to its home. That was pretty hard. You never really kind of expect it to happen, but when it did happen and you went to the ceremony and you heard the entire battle group silent as the last post is played and the bagpipes are played and the bloke's mates standing around his coffin, his closest mates standing in a coffin in tears. There's a battle-hardened soldiers in tears because one of their mates has paid the ultimate sacrifice by sitting on a landmine, essentially. Knowing that Paul Warren was in hospital, obviously that was, you know, one of their mates was dead, but one of their mates was also critically injured in hospital, missing a leg. That weighed on a lot of people's hearts at the time. But standing out on the road, and we, we lined the roads, so both sides, and it wasn't just Australians, it was Australian Dutch the Americans, anyone who was there would line the road from the funeral area or funeral procession in the hangar down to the flight line. So there was close to 2,000 people lining the road. And as the coffin passed, they all salute as their final farewell. And just watching the plane take off, you know, it just really kind of sinks and hits home pretty hard that this is war and people do pay the ultimate sacrifice. I can imagine it's very transformative for you because you're 19, 20 and you're being forced to face mortality of yourself and your friends, not just at a conceptual abstract level, but it's right there on that ramp. Yeah, 100%. And that's it. You, you see it and it's, it, it just really hits you in the face. And when, when it occurs, you, it, it's like the penny drops. That's the day where everything changes. You do realise your mortality and you say, wow, this is, this is actually it. You know, Don't make a mistake because if I do it with my last one, it either drives you harder to be better or it weighs you down and it makes you fear. The one that grows is the one you choose, what you decide to do from there. So a lot of us after that got very motivated to do better and go out, not in a revengeful way, but to go out and do better to make sure that it didn't happen again, you know, um, until we returned home. And, you know, the day that the other guys rock up to take over from your trip, the day they rock up is a day where you kind of breathe a sigh of relief, but you kind of still, in the back of your mind, you stay focused because you know that if I switch off now, I might just make that fatal mistake. How long were you over there for? Uh, so our planned trip was nine months, but we ended up being there for just shy of 10 months because as it was returning home, the dirt runway was actually covered in snow, which turns it to mud, and the C-130s weren't able to land on it. I remember walking outside two days before we were due to fly out, and it was snowing, and I walked back inside. I said to Tomo, one of the boys I was in the tent with, I said, Tomo, it's snowing outside. I don't think we'll be flying home anytime soon. And Tomo had uh, two young girls and his wife back home. And um, I think that was a day a lot of us kind of sat down and were like, oh, just want to get out of here now. You know, nine months was definitely long enough. You return home in 2010. Did home, Australia, seem different to you after coming back from Afghanistan? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's 
it's more foreign than going over to a foreign country, I would say, in some aspects. You come back home and Australia is the place where everyone has a land of opportunity, a lot of great things happening here, sport, culture. You know, the nine news in the afternoon might have certain stories on there which are seemingly unimportant in the big scheme of things, but everyone's getting emotive about it. I remember when I came home, the price of milk was a big talking topic. I had my birthday over there. I was 20 years old, and as I was um, at home, I was watching the news and remember saying to Dad, it seems stupid that everyone's so concerned about stupid things like the price of milk and fuel and just all these things. When on the other side of the world, people are dying trying to help a country that is in such dire straits. And he said, straight up, he goes, that's because no one back here cares. I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, of the majority of people, a lot of them don't really see what you see. They don't have friends and family like us that know where you've been and what's happened. They're just living their lives blindly. And their biggest thing that might focus on their day is the fact that, yeah, okay, they had to pay 60 bucks for a tank of fuel. That's the biggest thing in their day. And that kind of knocked me back a bit, kind of put me back in my um, back in my seat. And I kind of realized that, yeah, that's pretty true, pretty accurate. Back here in Australia, we're so far away from the rest of the world, we don't really listen to what's happening in the rest of the world as well. And we, we watch it on the news and we see what we see in the news, but we don't experience it, we don't live it. So we can't really weigh up how much it is affecting us. And we'll get back to this topic a bit more later, but you're also, I imagine, not going to be taking that seriously. You're a 20-year-old war veteran. Those two ideas don't sound like they go together. No, and that's exactly right. You know, being so young and, and being you know, a veteran and having that been to war, and you know, although it's not a war like World War Two and Vietnam and, and World War One. It's a war nonetheless. It's a modern war where threats are different, everything's changed. Technology is at the forefront of the, the war experience. You come back here and you struggle. You do. As a 20-year-old, the biggest concern is let's go to the pub with the boys and have a beer. My first night back in Australia, that's exactly what we did. All the guys that were single and didn't have families essentially said, I'll see you at the pub at about 8 o'clock. And we did. We went to the pub, you know. And it was, it was a fun night, but... We just tried to continue our lives as we left off without really falling back on the fact that we were recently returned from Afghanistan. At the time, did you look back on that first tour, though, overall as a positive experience for you? Yeah, I, I, it was positive in its own rights. We remember the good times. You don't remember the bad times. And there were a lot of bad times, you know, in the country, stupid rules, regulations, all those things we like to complain about. But looking back on it now, you know, the mates I made on that trip, the experiences I had as a young 19-year-old, my 20th birthday was spent in a shelter taking cover from rockets with a fruitcake that mum had sent over. That was my birthday. I'll remember those vividly. I try not to remember the bad days. I will still remember them. You know, the days that Ben was killed and, and the phones got blacked out and we all had to go and hear the words from our commanding officers and, uh, and bosses saying that an Australian soldier has been killed. They're always going to remain there. But you try not to remember those ones. You want to remember the good times and the good mates and the funny things you did. And I remember all of those. And I try and take what I can from that experience, make it a positive experience and use that to drive me further into my future. So for most parts, yeah, it's a positive experience for me. You're 20. You've had to face a lot in a short amount of time and drastically readjust your view of the world. What then motivates you to go back to Afghanistan? I wanted to lead soldiers. You know, when I came back, I saw the types of leaders that I'd met over there and what they'd done and what they'd achieved. And I thought, I want to be like those leaders. And there are so many inspirational leaders in our military that you look up to a lot of them and say, I want to be that kind of leader when I'm at that stage. And I had that opportunity given to me. So after coming home and going back up after leave, I was put on promotion courses and I conducted the courses and done quite well. And 
I picked up a promotion and was placed in charge of soldiers and, you know, essentially told, you guys are heading back over next year. You're going to stand by to find out who's on the list to go. So we just sat there waiting. But I had an opportunity to go over and lead soldiers that hadn't been soldiers who were in my shoes when I was on my first trip. They were young, hadn't been overseas before, hadn't experienced that. I had the ability to go and lead those soldiers in the same context, in the same country. But I also had a chance to go back and continue to put my part in the war effort. And that's what it was really. It was kind of, a, I want to go back to see the job get done. And although in some rights we never did, but hearsay for that one. But the motivator is you want to go back because you want to get the job done. So you're a Lance Corporal. You're in charge of about, say, 10 people? Correct. And you're 21. How do you feel about having that level of command at that age? Um, it was all right. I had a pretty good team. The troop leader was a really good bloke, as well as the, the um, section commander. You know, we had very good leaders. But I suppose the biggest responsibility that I had on that trip wasn't really the fact I was in charge of those soldiers, but my responsibility at the front of the convoy. That was my bigger responsibility. It was only months before we were about to deploy where we decided who was going in what vehicle. And out of the vehicle commanders, I was the only vehicle commander that was single. And I'd offered to go as a lead vehicle because it was the most likely to strike an IED. So I put my hand up and said, I'll volunteer to go to the forward vehicle. You know, I spent my last tour in the rear vehicle, but I'll do my time at the front now. That responsibility weighed more heavily on me than actual soldiers and leading soldiers. But that was always in the back of my mind that being a part of that team and leading that team was going to shape how we succeeded in our mission and showing so his courage in the face of danger for lack of a better term is a way of really inspiring junior soldiers to to achieve the best you know you don't want to tell the soldiers that the lead vehicle you don't want to be there mate that's not going to do you any well you want to inspire them and say you know i don't mind i'm not, I'm not afraid i know that if we do our job properly and we have our skill set we should be fine where are you based when you're over there? Uh, so when I was on my second tour, we actually lived in a small patrol base about 50 kilometres as the crow flies north of Tarankau um, in a place called Chora, a base called Mirawise, which was an interesting place to be. Australians had been in that area for quite some time, but now that we had moved from a reconstruction task force to a mentoring task force and our primary role was to mentor the Afghan National Army in combating the Taliban, we are actually going out on more patrols and actively seeking engagements to lead the ANA and mentor the ANA in how to combat the threat. Are there any particular standout memories from your first five months over there? For my first five months, I, I remember the big changes we had when we were there. On my first tour, we used to, there's a road called Route 62. And on my first tour over there, it used to be marked in a red pen and you weren't to use that road at all because it was such a threat. Um, the amount of vehicles that filled that graveyard we were talking about earlier came off that road. And when I got back over there on my second tour, that road was sealed. That's how good the reconstruction team had been doing their job. The road was sealed and it, you could do about 80 Ks on it. And we actually used to do what used to take us on our first trip, two or three days. We could do that in two or three hours because we didn't have to worry about the threat of bombs because we had a sealed road to drive on and there was security on the road. So we were doing mail trips into town essentially. And it was, um, it was great fun. Like I remember going down that road at about 50, 60 K standing out of the cupola of the vehicle, lead vehicle, leading a convoy of Australian vehicles into Tarrancourt to get repairs or to get medial things like get the mail or pick up VIPs we were taking out there or Afghan patrols and we'd drive down there. But just the scenery that was whizzing past your head was just unreal. So I always remember driving down the, up and down that valley. It was just a really cool experience. You know, we were essentially king of the jungle in a, a place that was full of wolves. Can you describe the scenery for me? 
The scenery is, it's like stepping back into the fourth century. It's um, now you're over there and you're more aware of the history around you. Yeah, correct. And you go across and it's not a desert with sand. It's a desert with rocks. It's a dry desert place and it's mountainous. We're talking mountains that go from, you know, zero to a hundred at a 45 plus degree angle. They're steep mountains and they're tall and they wrap around valleys. And in these valleys, you have the snow rivers that come through the wadis and the wadis are the life source. They're the heart and the, and the veins of Afghanistan. And either side of these wadis are the green zone. And it's the most lush, green, fertile environment you've ever seen. You'd be driving a patrol over some of the uh, some of the desert rocks and you'd go over a hill and there'd be more rocks. You go over a hill, more rocks. Go over the next ridge and it's just green as far as you can see. It was really amazing. And in winter, the mountains are just capped with snow as it filters down from the north as the winter sets in. And it's just beautiful. Like the scenery itself is beautiful. When the when the moisture from the snow hits the air, the dust settles and it becomes crystal clear. But during the summer months when the dust is at its highest, it's just it's a hazy fog of just, you know, yellow in the sky. The houses are built out of mud. You might be driving along and you see an entire village come together and they're building a house. And the house is a working bee of all the males shoveling mud from this beautiful river into this big pile of dirt, making mud, and they're shoveling mud to make a wall. But it might take them six months to build the wall because the mud's going to dry and set. But it becomes pretty strong. But the scenery itself is just beautiful to see. We talked earlier about the cultural progression you observed with uh, you see more of the female population and that kind of thing. Did you have other interactions with the locals that also showed you more face-to-face the changes since your first deployment? Since the first deployment, we had a lot more engagement with locals in the way of the female engagement team with local females. And we were doing enrolments of local men of obviously young boys all the way up to the elders. That meant we were out in teams taking photos of the men and we had to ask them questions about who they were, who their father was, what town they lived in or what village they were a part of. And so we learned a bit of Pashtun in, in, in the meantime, but we used to sit them down and take photos and most of the time they um, they all have very similar names. They're all Muhammads or very much the same context, you know, it's tribal, religious, and short for Muhammad is Mud. So these blokes would rock up and we'd say, you know, hey, Yarn in Pashto and, and then we'd ask them, you know, Nunchade, what was their name? And it was Mud. So we'd be like, oh, your name's Matt. Hey, yeah, Matt. And we just had kind of have a bit of, ba- they didn't know what we're doing, you know, and they'd have a bit of a laugh and we'd just talk to them and we'd laugh and we'd smile and they'd laugh and smile. And you saw that they're just humans, you know, they're just people. They're doing their daily thing. We come along and we're like, hey, mate, how you going? But they didn't mind us. They always seemed to cooperate with the Australians. They just didn't like certain teams that would come through and bully them or be a bit standoffish with them, point weapons at them. We tried not to have it ready to go just in case, but be polite. Be Australian, I suppose, was a big thing, you know. Even if you spoke in English and went, G'day, how you going? You know, people would still wave and be polite to you. So that's the important part about being over there. But we had a lot more experiences with the local population, had a lot more with the women as well. So that was important. On the 23rd of September, 2011, the risk you volunteered for with your new command role means you finally lose the game of chance that is driving through Afghanistan and your vehicle hits an improvised explosive device. Can you walk me through what happened that day? Yeah, um, early morning start, we had moved our patrol down to the low ground. So the actual mission was reconstruct or build a Afghan patrol base out in this valley, which the guys are doing. And as a side mission, we kind of got given, we had to move up north with a female engagement team and pick up a young girl who had bronchitis because she was really having trouble breathing. Hearts and mind mission, 
you know, show the locals we can help them by medicine and the ways of the advances in medicine we had with us. I went down and got the orders in the morning and the orders were to move up, pick up this young girl and come back. It was going to take a few hours, if that. So I got in the vehicle, moved off, and we're only gone about 20 minutes before we hit our first defile. And a defile is a channeling point or a choke point where the engineers have to get out and search. Now, it's not my decision. I kind of liaise with the engineer commander who sits in the front left seat. And we pulled up and I said to Jonesy, uh, do you want to check this one? He said, yeah, mate. So they got out. Hey, check that one. It was all clear. Moved through. Found another one. Went through that one. They found an IED. So we did what was called a BIP, which is a blow in place. And that was simple. Kept driving up. A few more kilometres down the road and we started to get word through the radio that the Taliban were talking on their radios and they could see us. So naturally, as we did, we amped our security up a little bit, started looking out what could be the threat. Driving along and we come over this hill and there's this massive, massive old creek line and it goes a couple hundred metres to the left couple hundred metres to the right, into the green zone, and the road goes straight down over it, and there's a concrete culvert that was built by the Americans with their PRT, the Provincial Reconstruction Team, and they built this culvert to help the local traffic drive over it. I looked at it, and I kind of went, textbook, and Jonesy goes, yeah, mate, can we go around it? So I looked to my left, and I saw the um, it would take about four or 500 metres to get off the road to go around this culvert, but it was doable because we had you know, off-road capability with the vehicles. And So I jumped on the radio, and, and I said to my... um. My troop leader, and I asked him if we could go around and bypass it. And he, uh, I'd set it on the company net as opposed to our troop net. The company commander heard it and was like, you know, as per orders, open the road. And so we kind of like rolled our eyes in the back of the head as young diggers do because, you know, that meant the guys had to get out and walk through there with the IED, uh, searching for IEDs. And that could take anywhere between 30 minutes to 90 minutes. You, you know, you never know. And if they find something, well, it slows you down even more. And it was about the middle of the day. It was hitting the height of the heat the other day and uh jonesy goes all right well we're gonna have to search it yeah right mate so jonesy gets out and as he got out i said mate i'm just gonna keep the vehicle up here just so i can prevent keep security for you but while you go to the low ground and he goes yep no worries because usually i would follow them up close behind but this time just didn't seem right nothing felt right and so the boys went through and took him about just over an hour to go through there pj our edd was out as well with her handler and they got through the other side, and just as I got through to one point, I remember pulling out my camera, and I took a photo, I had a SLR, and I took this really cool photo that had a really, that really beautiful scenery I was talking about behind it, and these five engineers and a dog searching through a, a high-risk spot. It was quite a cool photo. Put it away, put my camera back in the Pelican case, and I kicked it behind the uh, driver's seat. Jonesy turned around and gave me the thumbs up from the other side, and I said to my driver, Ned, his name's Reese, but we called him Ned, and um, said to him, righto, mate, let's go. And we... Uh, Slowly idled down into the culvert, drove over the culvert, and then woof. It wasn't a bang, it was more of a thud. And I remember seeing the sun, so I saw the sun. I knew it was about one o'clock, and I blacked out. And then I came to in the rear of the vehicle, face down, my arms crossed, and I was laying on top of my arms. Uh, I couldn't wriggle my toes and didn't know what had just happened. But um, I'd driven over an IED, and I could hear Ned yelling out to me, asking if I was all right. And as soon as I could reply, he goes, Maisie, you all right? You all right? And I tried to wriggle my toes to try and push myself like to get up, and I couldn't. I had no strength, and I just replied, nah, I'm no good. And by this point, he reached back to try and grab a red smoke grenade to pass on to the rest of the convoy that we had someone who was severely injured inside, and um, where we'd kept the smoke grenades had been in the blast had been completely destroyed, and it was gone. So he couldn't reach a smoke grenade, and he couldn't undo his seatbelt and his harness because it had been destroyed as well. The buckle had been twisted sort of thing. So he's trying to get out of his seatbelt. I'm facing the rear door of the vehicle, all of a sudden, the back door opens up and this bright light comes in. First thing I do is panic because I'm seeing a bright light and um, I kind of blacked out again. It's overwhelming. 
next thing you know, the door's closing and it's going black and I blacked out. And then the next thing I can remember is the smell of cigarettes, rolly cigarettes. I knew one person we had in our call site. He was the chief petty officer, EOD technician, the clearance diver. He was trying to put a neck brace on me, a C-spine brace. His hands were up under my chin and my throat, trying to pull my helmet off. And he'd been smoking rolly cigarettes and they were really, really bad smelling cigarettes. It was like the cheapest tobacco you could find. And it was kind of like smelling salts. The smell of his hands passing below my nose kind of snapped me to reality. And I came to, and I knew it was him because of the smell. And I said, dog, is that you? And he goes, yeah, mate. And I said, what happened? Just hit an IED. And I just went, oh, shit. (laughs) And that was it. And um, I passed back out again. Next thing you know, I wake up as I'm being removed out of the vehicle. So I'm strapped down on a spine board now and I'm being dragged out of the vehicle, pulled back up to the safe area. It was still midday. It was about 1.40 in the afternoon, I think it was. And I could see the sun and the sun was directly in my eyes. And as soon as that blistering sun hit my eyes, I was awake. I knew what was going on. Got carried up to the top of the vehicles on the ridge where I'd entered into the culvert. And my mate, Jeff Casson, was standing up on the uh, on the hill on the radio, trying to liaise with the um, aeromedical evacuation that were coming in to pick me up and, and Reese. I was laying there looking at the sun and the sun was hurting and everyone's moving around me trying to, you know, I got given morphine. And the moment I got given morphine was like I had superhuman strength and I started to get a bit confident in still being alive and started yelling at the Taliban. I say, you couldn't beat me. I'm still alive. You haven't got me yet. And um, I remember Jeff, who's on the radio, and he looks down at me and he kicks me as I'm laying down and he goes, will you shut up? <laughs> I'm sorry. And uh, I said, I need some glasses. The sun was hurting my eyes. So he took his glasses off and he put his glasses on me. We were sitting there for a few minutes and I just remember staring at the sun and enjoying the ride of morphine, taking the pain away. And um, I heard the chopper coming, rotor noise of the chopper coming in and it came in and the dust settled and I was put on the back of this US Army Blackhawk. And Jeff had carried me on and as he put me on the chopper, he kind of like leaned over onto my chest and patted me on the chest and said, don't worry, mate, you're going to be all right. We'll see you in Tarrant The door shut, chopper took off and began the scariest 30-minute ride of my life. But that was essentially from where to go, the, the IED incident in itself. A lot of it seems blurry nowadays sort of thing, or it was more blurry at the time, but as time progresses and I've hear, heard the stories from people that were there, it kind of pieces together parts that I missed out on really well to the point where I can uh, actually recollect a lot of it now. And I go, oh, well, that fills that memory gap. So, Do you know anecdotally how common it is to get a clearance like that and then there's an IED missed? It had happened to us before, only a few months before, not even a month before, I don't even think. I actually was um, leading a convoy and I drove over an IED and didn't set it off. And the car behind me set it off. And I remember driving through this creek line and then all of a sudden I'd heard that same whoop and I turned around and the two wheels of the car behind me were flying off in different directions and the, cloud, the car was gone in a cloud of smoke and dust. So I've seen IEDs go off close to me, but I've also been in one and, and it is literally a game of Minesweeper. You know, that old game we used to play on mum and dad's computer. You, you don't know what buttons you're pressing, but... I always lost. Yeah, I don't think anybody's ever won that game, but um, it was it was a game of chance. And you were driving around sometimes and the engineers would get out. And thankfully, the engineers who, again, are 19, 20, 21 years old, you know, I was 21 as a commander and so was Jonesy. Yet he was in command of four engineers searching for IEDs in Afghanistan. And I think his two lead searchers were 19 years old. These guys, they're going out searching for IEDs with a essentially a metal detector. The Americans thought we were crazy, but we had some really well-trained guys and they could find tins of peaches that were buried out there. And there were tins of peaches buried in the middle of the desert, but um, you'd miss some. And it was always forbidden to say that the engineers would clear ground, I suppose, because it builds the psyche that there's no such thing as a clear ground. They search the ground. 
and there's two ways you can search for an ID with a mine lab and a metal detector or you can search it with your feet and your wheels so you're kind of always really searching but so many people missed and had near misses and had close experiences with IEDs you're just thankful for a lot of them happening that way for me I remember I know now that I'm still able to walk and talk there are people who are a lot worse off than me from IEDs I'm thankful for how I found that IED because if it had been the engineers that had found it by stepping on it, it would have killed all five of them. And I would have much rather me hit it than them step on it and kill five of those guys. I would have rather destroyed a vehicle that doesn't have anything. You know, it's just a vehicle. It's just steel, you know. So I'd much prefer that. That's very noble of you to say, but you were in that vehicle. Yeah, and I, and I know, and so was Reese as well, but even, even Reese and I, we share the same sentiment. We'd do it all again if it meant those five guys could stay alive, you know. Let's jump back to the helicopter ride. Are you in there angry at the Taliban? Are you wanting to go back out in a vengeful rage or are you just confused what on earth is happening? I'm in tears at that time. I had just had the reality of what had happened hit me in the face. Literally. Literally, yeah, literally it had just, you know, I, I took a big knock to the face. I took a big knock to the head. My spine had gone into shock. I was in shock. I couldn't feel my feet and we took off. The air in Afghanistan is really quite thin because it's at high altitude, so the choppers really have a bit of trouble flying every now and then. So you do feel that up and down drop of the air pressure. And we're flying along and the chop would drop and then it would pick back up and drop again. And it was a bumpy ride. It wasn't exactly um, a Melbourne to Sydney flight with you know, services. But um, the medic in the back was bagging Reese, So he was putting the um, cannula in at the time. And the, the rotation and shaking of the helicopter and how hard it is to cannulate someone with a needle and trying to poke into their vein under their skin. This guy got it first time, straight in. And I was amazed at that. I was just watching this, you know, out of the corner of my eye. And I started crying. And then this whole time I'm trying to wriggle my toes. I'm trying to move them. And I can't. I can't feel them moving. I can't feel anything below my waist. And then I was like, I live on the second story of a townhouse down in Townsville. And it has stairs. How am I going to be able to get to the second story? How am I going to get home? I'm going to be a paraplegic. I'm not going to be able to feel my legs ever again. That's, that started to set in that real doubt. Then realising that I'd just driven over an IED in a war zone, you know, and I was now on an American Black Hawk helicopter being evacuated because I had a head injury as well as I can't feel my, can't feel my legs. Terrifying, terrifying experience. And then in the space of about 25 minutes, the, the ride was over. We're coming into land in Tarankau. The door opens up and I'm getting dragged out by... Medics from different countries. There's a Singaporean medic, Australian medics, American medics coming together as a team to pull me out. And I get placed in the back of a, a vehicle that drives me up to the triage bay of the hospital and into the triage bay we go. The helicopter ride was probably the the part that sticks with me the most and probably is a, a big trigger for me because it is such a in-your-face experience. So what were your injuries and what was your recovery like? So my injuries initially uh, was that I had a traumatic brain injury. A TBI. I had fractured my C1, C2, C2, C3. However, that wasn't diagnosed until about eight and a half months later. Uh, we just didn't have the capacity to do that over in the country. What had occurred to my back was essentially I'd taken such a large knock to my back that it had caused my back to go into immediate shock and protect my spine. All of the discs in my back, so from bottom to top, have all been essentially destroyed or completely thinned out which has made me a little bit shorter than I used to be. The big injury they were concerned about was the fact that my brain was going to bleed. They didn't know what, where, if that was going to occur or when that was going to occur because they just didn't have the, the capability to, to look after that. Initially, my um, treatment was pretty simple. I got moved into, and the spinal injury was obviously the big one as well. I got moved into the, um, the triage bay, had my clothes cut off, and my brain skipped back a moment. 
to a very, very specific point in my military training. It was the medical training that if you have a severe back injury and are likely to be paralyzed from the waist down, males will most likely get an erection and it'll be the last erection they ever have, which is a weird thought to have go through your head in, in hospital. Um, and one of the medics was there, Jackie, and I kind of looked at her and said, Jackie, and I shook my head to kind of tell her to come over. And she came over and I said, Jackie, do I have a boner? And she said, no, no, you don't. And I've gone, oh, good, sweet. But I didn't say it as quite as I thought I did because of the morphine and everyone had a bit of a chuckle. Did they know why you're asking that question? They all knew. They all knew, thankfully. Um, and the doctor had a bit of a laugh about it as well later on. The rest of that you know, evening kind of played out very quickly. And once the morphine wore, wore off, I was straight away asleep and they were trying to keep me awake. So I was really in and out of kind of what was happening. To fully understand your injuries, you were in the driver's seat and... I'm also hoping you can help describe the vehicle for listeners a bit, but you're in the driver's seat. When you hit the IED, you're thrown up out of the vehicle and then back into the vehicle in the rear. Not quite, very close. So imagine a four-wheel drive. So imagine a four-wheel drive truck, if you will, um, and its its wheels are pretty big. They're up to about hip height on the average male. They're quite large. They weigh about 220 kilos. This vehicle is made of steel, and underneath the vehicle, it's got a V-shaped hull. So instead of it being a flat bottom car like a normal car it's shaped like a v and that means if a blast goes off below it it dissipates the force out on an angle as opposed to hitting it front on they're called bushmasters they're made in australia and bendigo and uh good bit of kit they weigh about 15 ton all up with all their gear on it so it's about 13 ton unladen but you know 15 ton with all the equipment there's got a driver's seat and a passenger seat and the driver's seat was where reese was and the passenger seat was where jonesy was sitting the engineer commander now between those two seats there's a hole in the roof and that's called the cupola, and that's where the commander stands. He stands up manning a machine gun. So he's actually not strapped into a seat. He stands up on his feet all day, spinning this around and looking for the enemy. And if the enemy does contact us, he has the ability to use that machine gun to engage the enemy. As I hit the IED, the force from the IED, which was directly below my feet, threw the vehicle up and stood it almost on its tail, um, which is pretty strong for picking up a 13-ton vehicle. As it pushed up, the force had pushed me out of the hole. So I was ejected vertically out of the hole, and then the overpressure and the pressure of the blast enveloped the car and then forced me back into the car. You've been yo-yoed out of it. Yeah, essentially blown out and sucked back in in, in an instant. Um, and as I got blown out, I actually pushed the machine gun up, and as I got sucked back in, I hit the butt of the machine gun with my face. Um, don't recommend that to anybody. Um, and... As I hit the inside of the vehicle, I flipped around and actually landed face down in the rear of the vehicle in the passenger compartment where the engineers sat, facing towards the rear door. And we had another position. So in the rear of the vehicle, there's a position for a rear shooter. And the rear shooter was uh, Swanee. And he, got, as I got sucked back in, he actually got forced out. So as the pressure of one person getting forced back in, it forces everyone out. And he actually got ejected from the vehicle and he did a forward flip and landed on his feet about six metres behind the vehicle and then um, stood back up. And that initial door opening and closing was actually Swanee getting back into the vehicle because where there's one bomb, there's usually another one around. So he was getting back in as per his training to make sure that he wasn't a threat to the uh, you know, other IDs. So the vehicle actually took 99.9% .9 of the brunt. Reese was in the driver's seat. That's Ned, my driver. Um he was in the in the driver's seat in his harness. So he's seated in a seated position in the harness. And as the vehicle got blown up, he just kept holding the steering wheel. And as it landed and had no front end, 
Um, he was still holding the steering wheel, unaware of what had just happened. So it's pretty, pretty common for drivers to do that, though. So you're back in the hospital bed. You're worried about paralysis, but less so because you don't have the boner. Yeah. And they're watching your brain in case it might bleed at any moment. Yep. What happens next? Uh, so pretty much I had the doctors walk in and the doctor came in and goes, how are you going? And I said, being better. And he pulls out a pen and goes, we're going to check your feet. Okay, no worries. He goes, the injection should be wearing off by now. And I was like, what injection? He goes, you had an injection in your back. All right, no worries, cool. Pulls out his pen and he taps on my toe. He goes, can you feel that? And I said, no. So he pulls out his pen. Uh, sorry, he's still holding a pen in his hand. He sticks his pen between my toenail and my toe and kind of like just pushes my toenail, to which I felt a very sharp sting. And I go, oh, I can feel that. And he's like, sweet, you can feel your feet again. Weight off the shoulders. It was amazing. He's like, let's get you standing up. Okay. <laughs> so sat up in the bed, pivoted around on my bum and hanging my legs over the edge of the bed. And I do up you get. And you know, if you fall asleep on your arm or you fall asleep on a leg and your leg goes to sleep and it feels like it's all staticky, it was like that, but with both legs. And you know, when you put weight on it, all of a sudden it becomes really painful. It was like that, but with both legs. So from my toes all the way up to my hips was all feeling like static. It was feeling it was gone to sleep and I had to try and get out and put weight on it and I couldn't control my knees so I couldn't control my knees I couldn't control my ankles I didn't even know how to stand up so I grabbed a hold of Jackie and, and stood up and dropped down again and stood up and dropped down again stood up like a baby giraffe legs were shaking and it was like that for about 45 minutes it was crazy um and after about 45 minutes I was shuffling around again just with a really really bad pain in my back after that, you know, I was still covered in dust and dirt and I was still pretty manky. They walked in with a little bag and said, here you go, here's some clothes you can wear. It's called a Simpson pack. It was named after Simpson and his donkey. It's got a picture of Simpson and his donkey in the front. And they said, there's some soap in there and whatnot, go have a shower. So I went and had the hottest, longest shower I've had in probably a long time. And I probably just sat in there just trying to just wash away the day, really. So that was um, that was my time. And then I came out. And they sat me down with the laptop and they said, we want you to try and do this cognitive test, which I couldn't pass the first time. They said, we'll try it again tomorrow. So that started the start of my neurological testing to see if I could actually go back out and fight, uh, which I never ended up passing. It took me near on a month and a half to, to get past that. Um, I had terrible ringing in my ears, so I was struggling to speak to people. And um, from the knock to the head, I developed a stutter. So conversations weren't the greatest with me at that point. When was it you were finally sent home? Um, I was sent home in mid-October. So it was 23rd of September I got hit and mid to late October I was sent home after going to Kandahar. So I got flown from Tarankout to Kandahar to the uh, American facility in Kandahar where I was met with an American Navy neurosurgeon and we did some further testing and he, um, he decided that it wasn't okay for me to go back and so I got a medically returned to Australia uh, stamp on the on the book and that was the end of my trip in Afghanistan. When you came home, how did you deal with it emotionally? Uh, emotionally, I didn't. <laughs> emotionally, I pretty much bottled it up and put it away at the, at the initial point. When I flew back to Australia, I'd, uh, I was met by mum in Townsville. So mum flew to Townsville. When I was in hospital, they said, do you want us to call mum or do you want to call mum yourself? To which I screamed, don't you dare call mum. Because I don't think the last thing mum's going to want to hear is the Australian army on the phone talking about her son. Might truck a bit of fear into her. So I called her up and told her what had happened. But and initially I couldn't get a hold of her because she was um, on the spirit of Tasmania coming back home. So I called my brother who used to be in the army and I rang him up and said, hey, I'm, I'm in hospital. I've been hit by one of those things. 
And he kind of went, oh, yeah, no worries. You're right? And I said, I'll be right. He goes, have you told mum yet? And I said, no, nah, if you get a hold of her, can you let her know I'm trying to get a hold of her? He's like, yeah, no worries. And that's pretty much how I told my family in an instant. Um, but once I got through, I told mum and dad and they, um, mum flew to Townsville and I came back with a bunch of soldiers that were returning after their end of their trip and um, they were met by their families and loving arms in the Townsville airport and I got whisked out of a side door in a wheelchair to mum who was outside with the acting commanding officer and got a hug off mum and then I was sent to the hospital on base. But uh, emotionally, I just packed everything up, you know, and, and took it with me and, you know, that was it. I wasn't going to try and deal with it there and then. How was your face by this point after headbutting the machine gun? It was all right. It was still the way it is now. A lot of my mates will say it was pretty ugly, but um, I still had stitches in my face, but uh, the um, swelling had all gone down. I was feeling pretty good. So the wheelchair probably frightened your mum more than it's stitches bit, in your yeah. face. Yeah. A little bit, yeah. The uh, wheelchair was more of a precaution because I was a medical patient and I had to be treated as such through the airport. You know, as soon as I got out of the airport and we're out in the car park area, I could stand up and walk around and gave mum a hug, so that was good. Because you did the very classic unhealthy thing of bottling it up i can only imagine that led to some anger issues yeah yeah there's a lot of issues that came out of that at the initial instance i wanted to get back there i wanted to see the lads so i tried to lie about it to try and say hey i'm fine can i go back and when i couldn't pass those tests still i couldn't pass the cognitive tests i got moved out of my unit i was put on sedentary duties and i started to resent that i was like well i'm a soldier i'm not an office clerk and then i got told we can't there's no one in townsville that can see you medically there's no neurosurgeons that are taking on new patients. You're going to have to go to either Melbourne, Sydney or Canberra. I said, oh, I don't care. So they got me positioned in Canberra at the uh, Federation Guard, the ceremonial unit. So I packed up and moved down to um to Canberra. Pretty much bottled it all up. Didn't let it really get to me until mid-2012 when that was when I had a really bad night and, you know, tried to take my own life. Was was through that night, you know, just letting it out. And that was the penny drop moment, that one. You caught yourself and realised what you were doing. Yeah, yeah. So I pretty much went outside and I had a new girlfriend and, and she'd been deployed back to Afghanistan and I was at home by myself in my apartment, decided to just get written off drunk and try and deal with my things that way and that didn't work out and I was outside of the balcony looking down and I thought, you know what, I can end all this pain and suffering right now, it'll all just go away. Climbed over the balcony and I looked down and, you know, I just had a moment of clarity. It's like, what about mum and dad? What about your older brothers? What are you doing? What about the boys? So I climbed back over and got up into a ball and stayed there and the next morning I woke up, put my uniform on, put my boots on, went to work as if nothing had happened and then um, went to hospital that day and walked in and said, oh, I want to make some appointments. So I booked in to start seeing the psychs there and going through it all and I, they said, when you came back, you said you were fine and I was like, yeah, no, yeah, I did. I just did what everyone else does though. I just lied about it, you know. So we started going through the long, long process of dealing with that and got diagnosis of anger issues, PTSD, depression, anxiety, you know, the works and jerks had come out of that. Well, I think, Chris, that key moment there is an inspiration for a lot of people. That moment of clarity, it saved your life, but it reflects a great inner strength within you as well. Did you have any other issues or moments of anger that clarified for you what you were going with? I suppose a lot of times I've had things that have occurred, you know, challenges and setbacks and things that have really put me back. I've had two relationship breakdowns of my own fault. And both of those have been points where I've gone, you need to really have a bit of self-reflection and look at what you've done. My anger and just the way I deal with things, you know, I'm not a very emotive person. I don't really respond to emotions well. Kind of deal with things very systematically like a soldier would. You know, that's not helpful, especially not if you're trying to have a relationship with somebody. It doesn't help at all. Those moments become clear 
usually after the fact and you do reflect and go, you know, this is where I've got to change. They're all small things though. You're not going to change your entire psyche in one moment. You're going to change it over time by addressing certain key aspects and issues. You know, I've had fallings out with my family as well, um, my brothers, my mother, you know, um, I've had issues with everyone. I've had a fight with someone at one point, had yelling matches and whatnot. And each of those things, after the fact, you look back at what you said or what's been said and, and it resonates. You kind of say, well, that's where I've got to, I've got to address that now. That's a new thing to address. So those things, they become the hardest to deal with. Well, one of your older brothers had served in the Middle East. What did he make of you? At one point there, it was, we were talking about it and, um, yeah, we, we've had a, we've had scuffs before where we've, you know, he kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, no one, the world doesn't owe you anything. You've got to pull your head in and realize what you've done. No one cares about. You just need to move on and start living your life and doing what you need to do. And that's, that's true to a point, you know, you can't let everything else weigh you down and hold you back in that aspect. You know, the world's a different place to what it was many years ago. Blokes that came back from World War One and World War Two, they, they were held and revered as heroes and, you know, they, they struggled to find jobs as well. You know, that's how the Sydney Harbour Bridge was built by veterans that were fearless and they were walking along the bridge with no harnesses that suited them. And, you know, I, I left the army and tried to find a job that suits me and I'm still looking for that job that suits me, but I've done assisting other veterans that are in trouble and having um, suicidal thoughts and ideation and whatnot. I've been through that. I've seen those guys. But I suppose the big part is you've, you've got to listen to those words sometimes. And my brother did give me some pretty wise words and telling me to kind of pull my head in, so to speak, and really think about it. But it, over time, it does make you wiser. It just doesn't feel like it at the time. You have that moment of clarity. You have your brother tell you to pull your head in. What other coping methods do you use these days? For me, uh, at the moment, uh, I use, uh, I'm very involved in study. So I'm studying at the moment, which kind of keeps my brain active. Uh, I got the dog, Hugo, who's a good barrel of laughs, you know, take the dog out for a walk. Dogs are very therapeutic. You know, they're happy to see you even when you're not happy. I do go to the gym. I keep physically fit. Um, I can't let my back get any worse than it is. You know, I've already got the back of a 50-year-old apparently, according to the doctors. So I've got to try and keep my fitness up to allow me to um, live that good healthy life that's how I got into the running you know with the half marathons I thought I'd just try something different and see how I go how'd you do I I I did both of them I've done two now my first one I did without any training at all I just signed up on the Thursday and I ran it on the Sunday I was pretty sore for a few more days afterwards but um I finished it I made a promise to myself that I was going to finish that 21 and 0.5, whatever it is, kilometres. I did hit the mental and physical challenges. You know, the mental challenge set in at 15 kilometres, but I thought if I've overcome everything else in life, I'm going to overcome running a half marathon. It doesn't seem like a big challenge. So, And at 19 kilometres, my body started to tell me that 19 kilometres is enough to run, but I I ran it all the way to the end and I finished. And it was a good feeling to finish something and see it through. With regards to my coping mechanisms, I still go out and help other people. I tell my story in the hope that my story resonates with other people and that they're not alone in how their stories have unfolded. Some of the most inspirational people I've met have been through times more challenging and just as challenging as my own personal ones. And those are the people I look up to as well because it's not about falling back on the hard times. It's about progressing through those hard times and being successful afterwards. But it's all a mindset thing. And so, you know, every day I'm trying to better myself however I can. And that's what I try and do. And how are the symptoms of your traumatic brain injury? Yeah. Uh, six years on. It's coming up to six years in about four days, isn't it? I don't normally pull back the curtain, but it's a week before, it's one week before the six-year anniversary. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So it's not far off now, but um, I'm feeling good. You know, I'm healthy. I'm, I don't drink anymore. Uh, I, I lay off the alcohol because it just knocks you back a few pegs every now and then. I feel good. My body feels good. My brain feels good. I do have days where I wake up and my brain says, just go back to sleep. Like we're not ready for today yet. I do get really bad headaches every now and then. But if I stay physically active, fit, healthy, and I eat well and drink 
water. It subsides a lot of the effects of it. I don't take any medication. You know, I, after some of the treatments I went through for PTSD and the head injury, I've completely gone off all medication to make sure that I can um, kind of hit those high notes with my body and not be feeling lethargic and whatnot. So the symptoms have subsided a lot for the brain. I still have to do yearly testing though to make sure that I'm not getting any major drops in cognitive function. Um, there is still that risk of dementia, early onset dementia as a result of head injuries, um, which is a pretty scary thought, but um, you know, you can't let that come in and knock you down. You've got to stay positive and roll with the punches, you know. Six years on, I've still got some good years left in me, so I'm being positive about it. This will lead into the work you're doing today, but Vietnam veterans were appallingly treated when they came back from war. But the nation has done its best since then to make up for that and recognise their service, and I think we've come a long way as a country since then in doing that. But decades later, looking at how the veterans of the 21st century are treated, do you think we've learned anything? Different society, different times. We've learned some lessons. I think the people that witnessed what had occurred to the Vietnam veterans, they will remember that, and they will look at that now and go, we were wrong. There are people in today's generations that treat us the same way that the Vietnam veterans were treated. It's very obvious, but that's the beautiful part of where we live is you can have those opinions and freedoms. You're not being persecuted for anything. We have learned some of those lessons. We learned them the hard way, but we're still making some small mistakes. And those small mistakes are resulting in devastating consequences. Veterans are perceived to be broken nowadays because they've served the military and they're all going to be tied with the same brush if they've got PTSD, they've got anger issues. Not all of them do. Some people come back and live very successful lives after their military service. They move on to small businesses, um, consulting firms, and there are people in today's society that are serving, that have served that you wouldn't even know have served because they've either opted to go with the, I'm not a veteran, I'm just a businessman or I'm a, I'm a, I'm a worker because they don't want that brush to tarnish them and bring them down and people look at them and feel sorry for them, which is sad. There are those that do need help and there are those that are suffering. We're seeing veteran homelessness increasing and veteran employment is also very hard to achieve. Veterans are looking for a job that gives them a level of satisfaction that maybe their military career gave them. Very hard to find. A lot of veterans end up in the police, emergency services, etc. A lot of them end up in private security firms, often back in Afghanistan and Iraq. Some go into jobs where they put themselves in harm's way because it's something they're familiar with. It changes. We have learned the lessons of the country to an extent, but we still got a little while to go and we, we are getting better and it just takes time. What should we be doing better? I think we should be focusing on veterans as the can-do attitude they can provide. I'm not talking the entire country. We, we shouldn't put veterans in, in you know the PM position. Um, not saying we should just boost them up there because they've got that experience. I'm saying it's more along the lines of the local communities. Veterans are inspirational. Veterans have leadership qualities, have conflict resolution abilities. They've learned how to deal with people they don't like in a way that is okay. They've learned to grab a soldier who was in trouble with the law before they joined the military. They joined the military and they become a really good soldier. They've had to mold them into that. And they do that through leadership, the inspiration of youth to achieve a set task. You know, you're looking at groups of people from different walks of life, regardless of color, race, gender, whatever the case may be, coming together as soldiers to achieve a task with a team. They make really good coaches, like footy coaches. They make really good community leaders and youth development. And we're seeing a lot of those areas need good leaders. We're seeing a lot of those smaller places. You know, youth development is a big issue in a lot of communities. Veterans are almost perfectly suited to that. The right veteran, but the right veterans can do businesses wonders. They've got a brilliant work ethic. 
they want to see a job get done. They want it done yesterday because that's the way the Army, Navy or Air Force kind of treated them. They do the job and they do it well. They present themselves well. And you give them that opportunity and they will, they will succeed. That's the biggest thing. So I think utilising veterans in the this, in this local communities and the smaller communities as part of community development is something we should really be embracing and holding on to, not just focusing on veterans around Anzac Day and Remembrance Day. I think two days a year is not enough. I'm not saying we should have one day of the year in between those kind of level it out. I'm saying we should every day of the year, you know, have the appreciation for the veteran the same way we do for the elderly, the same way we do for people with disabilities, treat them as part of the community and not push them away. And that's a that's a, probably a strong message. They don't want pity or handouts or anything like that. They just don't want to be greeted with preconception. Correct. Yeah. And the preconception idea is... One, they are all broken. Um, which is wrong. Which is which is definitely wrong. You know, a lot of the veterans are fighting DVA for claims for injuries sustained during service, but that's the only thing that they're entitled to, you know. Um, we don't have veterans' pensions anymore for younger people. So the motive to join the military because after 20 years you can leave and have a pension is a false preconception. People ask me, they go, oh, you've served the military, I mean you've got a pension now. No, it doesn't. It means I've got to go out and get a job just like you and continue to do work. I don't look for handouts because I got hit by an IED. I use my story as a platform to inspire others that are in you know, similar predicaments or in the need of a hand, sure, but I would never expect people just to bend over backwards for me because of what's happened to me. I know people that have had much, much worse, and I look up to those people as well. People like Curtis McGrath, you know, he lost both of his legs below the knee doing the, da- the job that was the most dangerous, won a Paralympic gold medal. Inspiration, you know, that's where I find it. Well, Chris, I think a lot of people do look up to you and in big part that's come about because of Young Veterans RSL. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so um, my brother and I, we decided that the RSL, Return and Services League, has kind of lost its touch with the younger generations. It's associated commonly with the younger people with the three Ps, pots, pokies and palmies. And we try to steer away from that. You know, a lot of people that are the younger veterans nowadays below the age of 50 have got either young families and want to go outdoors and see things or they enjoy camping, fishing, push bike riding, motorbike riding, getting out and doing social things. Fitness is one of them as well. And we said to the RSL, you know, we want to start a group of people as part of the RSL, the oldest organisation that was set up to help return and served you know, men and women. And they said, yeah, okay, no worries. So we started up and, you know, we don't draw any wages from it. It's just all volunteer. We're veterans. We want to lead the community of veterans down here in Melbourne. So we started getting groups of people to come together and they hang out and have barbecues and do social activities away from the RSL, away from the pokies and gambling and alcohol side of it. And um, we thought we should try and do this around Australia. So we started spreading it out a little bit. People asking to run very similar groups around Australia and they have. And, you know, we've got groups in New South Wales and in Queensland and South Australia now, they're all doing the same thing. You say we, who are, you're one of the co-founders, who are the others? Yeah, so the other co-founder is my brother, Scott. So he actually joined the army uh, in 2006. And uh, yes, he did a tour of Iraq and a tour of Afghanistan. And we pretty much just sat around one day at his house. We were at the back. I think we were burning some rubbish at the time. I think we were burning. And we were trying to talking about it, about how there's nothing for us, you know. And that Melbourne's got such a large concentration of veterans, but they just don't hang out. You know, the olds and bolds do. They're hanging out at the RSLs or their clubs they've been in for the last 20 or 30 years, but the younger blokes don't. So we're trying to find that that happy medium, the balance. And as we grew, we had another bloke come on board, Matthew. He's an ex-Navy 
fellow and he identified the same thing. So we started to spread out and slowly over time it spread out enough that we started to see some real interest coming towards it. So we started addressing a lot of RSLs up and down the east coast of Australia and passing the message on about how we should modernise and they've been very receptive to it. And we've seen a lot of other organisations grow over time as well, but some of those draw wages and, you know, it's not for everyone, you know. Some people might agree with it, some might. It's about giving them the option to come to the one that suits their needs the most. And Chris, if people want to find out more about you guys, check you guys out or get in touch, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so if they want to get in touch, they'll visit our website, www.youngveterans.com.au. Um, we're on social media on Facebook, Young Veterans, Instagram as well, and we're also on Snapchat as well. So all the mediums for the, the younger people, we're all there. And we do have people all around Australia. And if you're looking at setting up in your own area, get in touch with uh, one of the team and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And you've got a public profile page as well. I have a public profile page, yes. Yeah. So Chris May is my my page and um, Matthew Keane is the other bloke as well. He has a profile page as well for his speaking roles uh, about his time in the Navy. Well, Chris, you're only a couple of years older than me and trying to imagine living what, through what you have and dealing with it in the way you have, I find quite hard to grapple with. So I find you an inspiration. Not only that, but you are taking your hardship and your experiences and using it as a driver to help others. And it's making an amazing difference. Thank you for sharing your story with me today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. My conversation with Afghanistan veteran Chris May is the last main interview for this year, but we still have a bonus episode coming out on Friday. After that, we will be back in the first half of 2018. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast in your app of choice to keep up to date. If you've liked today's episode, or the entire season, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes to help us reach more people with the podcast and to help spread these amazing Australian stories. Reach out to us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLpod. You can find out more about this podcast at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and you can write to us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. If you want more, details about our book and documentary are also on the website. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Alex Lloyd, Angus Horden, and Thomas Kay of Thistle Productions. Our artwork is by Mark Thacker at Big Cat Design, and our music is by Dan Van Workhoven of Mark IV Multimedia. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.